Hi, Black Hollywood Live fans. Today we're talking the fight over Prince's estate, Britney Spears gets grilled, and more on Justice is Served. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Lives. Justice is Served. Hello and welcome Black Hollywood Live fans to Justice is Served. Thanks for joining us on this May 4th, 2016. I almost said May 4th, just because <laughs> everybody's posting all these May the 4th be with you on Facebook and such. Uh, I'm happy to be back. My name is Chelsea Galicia, a LA-based attorney with my co-host Shaka Smith, a... a Lawyer turned actor, fitness model. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy. And we have Shannon Myricks, our UCLA law student. Thanks hey for being there. here. A lot has happened while I was gone, um, including the passing of Prince. Yeah. I wow. was really surprised, and he's really young. And by the looks of it, there's looks like opiates are uh, yeah, I feel like a none, part of this. No one really knew he was struggling, at least not publicly. Right. And uh, apparently, he may have died without a will, yeah. which in the legal world is a big, oh my gosh. Especially yeah. for Prince, this huge musical artist for decades now, yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sure what I've heard more of, that his estate is in the neighborhood of 300 million or 150. Either way, it's a lot of money to fight over. Uh, the court hasn't determined that there is no will, just that it doesn't look like there is one so far. Yeah. I've heard that he was pretty averse to signing documents in the last five years of his life. It was apparently really difficult to get a signature on everything because he had grown sort of paranoid about being screwed over. Probably had happened to him earlier in his career where he signed something and then felt like he got the short end of the stick. So it could be true that there is in fact no will. Yeah. And then other interesting part to this, besides the fact that there's no will, is that he lived in Minnesota, which is not a state where a lot of high-profile international big um, net worth individuals um, live and die in. And so the courts in Minnesota haven't flushed out a lot of the issues the same way that California courts have. So this is how it's looking so far. We've got, and correct me if I'm wrong, six siblings. Six siblings. So I think far. we have a seventh that is asserting siblinghood. So yeah. Right, a long lost sister supposedly yeah. who yes. says that they shared a mother but not a father. But nobody had ever heard of this person. Yeah, Darcel, Darcel Johnson. Until yeah. recently, which is not uncommon when a matter has to go to probate because then at that point all the financials become public information. Therefore, somebody, some random person like Shannon Myricks can look up the Minnesota court docket <laughs> yeah. and say, wow, this guy Prince has a big probate matter. I'm going to act like I'm his second cousin. But uh, at the same time, with the six siblings, I believe only one is a full sibling. So right. But under Minnesota well law, it yeah. doesn't matter how much blood is, is shared between mm -hmm. siblings. Mm -hmm. The full siblings will get the same amount as a half sibling. Yep. Yeah, I think the, was it the full sibling, was it Tika Nelson? Yes. So she's feeling kind of like she's getting the short end of the stick because she feels like she should get the lion's share of it. Yeah, and, you know, uh, I would, I mean, none of them that I know of did anything to help Prince's musical career. I don't know if any of them were really involved. So the fact that any of them would get anything should be considered a windfall. But, yeah, it's already shaping up to be pretty contentious with um, Tyka walking out on a family meeting about it, yeah. supposedly because she felt that she's entitled to more. Yeah. Apparently somebody needs to inform her that under Minnesota law, no, she's not. Yeah, and we and should. Pretty much under probate law, it doesn't matter how close you were to the person. 
only a will can account for giving money to people who deserve it, and that's mm -hmm. at the decision of the person who is now deceased. Right. And, and we should note he did have two other siblings who died, but if they have children, then those children will take their share. So we don't know if there are more people to come out and say, look, wow. yeah. And in addition to that, there's a guy who says that he made a bet with Prince. Oh, yeah. And uh, something about Prince being the Messiah or something? What, what a great, Rodney Dixon, he comes out and he says he made a, um, a bet with Prince that he was not the Messiah. And, uh, <laughs> and that bet um, would entitle him to all the legal rights, of all the legal musical rights of his, of his work. Yeah. And so he's asserted a claim. And I saw in one place that apparently this was recorded in court in the 90s. Other sources are saying nobody's seen this. Well, there's in nothing writing. written, and you know, Rodney did um, he did admit that it was verbal but implied. Okay. Good luck with that. I don't yeah, think yeah. that's going to go very far. Oral contracts can stand up in court. I think there's a statute of fraud issues in that <laughs> the value of Prince's music collection is more than the standard for violating the statute of frauds. I think it's uh, at least $10,000. Mm -hmm. Right. So it can't be oral. So. As, much as, as much money as this is, I wonder if these people realize that they're really fighting over less than half of whatever was left behind. Yeah. Because b between federal and state taxes, less than 50% of this is going to be left. Oh, but you do know that Prince, I'm sure posthumously, that estate will be making a lot of money. So This is really true. Especially, yeah. the, have you heard of this like secret music vault that apparently nobody has been in. People know it exists because they've seen a door. And supposedly there's so much music back there that he, they could put out an album every year for the rest of the century. Yeah. And that could be worth tens of millions of yeah, dollars. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. Artists all the time make several tracks for each um, CD that they have, a lot that don't even make it on the CD and so that, that music is still out there. Yeah. So this is going to be long, messy. I mean, the only thing that's been decided so far is that Bremer Trust Bank is going to be sort of the administrator so mm -hmm. far, but this is going to be years and years and years. So we may not talk about this again for years and years and years um, because I, I think there's going to be so many court appearances and fights, and so unless something monumental happens, this will probably be... Um, the last that we talk about this, but what we will probably talk more about is the new uh, drug enforcement um, investigation that's yeah. going on. Uh, supposedly into the doctors and the pharmacies, maybe any enablers that were helping Prince get a hold of opiates, specifically Percocet, that he may or may not have been lawfully prescribed. Yeah, we do know the day before he died, um, he went and filled a prescription, I believe, with Walgreens, and but he skipped about several other Walgreens on the way to get there. So it looks like he may have been kind of shopping around. Yeah, and I, I think up until recently, doctors felt maybe, I don't know, helpless is the right word, but they felt sort of inclined to give patients what they wanted because if they said no, the patient would just go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And we recently covered, I think it's been in the last three months, the first case of a doctor, and it happened here in LA, yeah. that was convicted of murder for prescribing so much pain medication that yeah. several of her patients died. But without cases like that, doctors sort of feel like their hands are tied, I don't know, because they have an ethical obligation to do no harm. Right. And yet many doctors have given out prescriptions that probably were not needed or were beyond a safe amount or went on for a longer period of time than should have been given. Well, I think it's I think it's tough when you have these high profile stars that come in and probably demand certain things. And 
what from what you can see that maybe these things are helping them and it's helping him perform and you know he's still um, giving shows so maybe it's not as detrimental as I think it may be to him you know I do think that if the prescription is supposed to end and you extend it you're not helping anymore you're hurting apparently yeah. this has been going on to... for a while because yeah. he had hip problems a surgery in 2010 and by that point he was already uh, a regular user of, of Percocet so I'm I'm glad that there is an investigation. I have my doubts about whether a federal agency is going to crack down on anybody, on any particular doctor. I think there will be a lot of finger pointing. And He's yeah. the one, she's the one. Because we don't know if he went to several different doctors and you know each doctor had no to, idea to that, bet that he you know, did. I mean, that, that is so he may have been overprescribed and with each doctor not knowing that they were overprescribing. So. Yeah. And, it would well. It'll be interesting to con to contrast this story with um, with one. I guess we can cover now the medical marijuana case. Oh yeah. So, mm -hmm. on the one hand, in the Prince story, the feds are going uh, after drug enablers, and then in this other story that we're covering, they're dropping a case against a major, I guess, drug dispensary. <laughs> a, it's the nation's largest marijuana dispensary. Yeah, Harborside Health? Yeah, so this yeah. place is, an, is up in Oakland, and not only the largest in California, but the largest in the whole nation, apparently, and the feds for four years have been trying to shut it down, and then recently just dropped the case. No explanation, just done. What do you think led to the feds deciding to no longer pursue the case to shut down Harborside? I think one thing is the exhaustion of funds and the fact that the dispensary put up a really admirable fight. This is a model dispensary. This is not some fly-by-night little corner shack that's just masquerading as a medical facility. They have the support of the city councilmen in Oakland. They have the support of congressmen in the state of California. So this is not a simple case. This is not a, a simple matter for the feds to kind of fight. Do you think yeah. that this result is specific to Harborside because of all of these allies that it had uh, sort of built up? Or is this a larger consequence that the feds are not going to go after any of these medical marijuana facilities in California or any other states where it's legal, although federally it's still illegal? Well, I think at least in California... Everyone knew that this harborside fight was a larger fight. And so in 2014, you had Congress pass an amendment that said that no federal funds would be used to go after state legal marijuana dispensaries. And so I think that really was dispositive of the um, dropping of the case here. Yeah, I think it's a trend rather than a, an exception in this one case. And it'll be really interesting to see. There's going to be lots of talk about marijuana in uh, the news coming up to the election because in California we're about to decide upon whether we want to legalize marijuana recreationally. Yeah. And we talk about it not just because it's California and that's where we live and work, but because California tends to set the trend or create momentum or be the sort of the critical mass that changes the culture or the tipping point for other states. Yeah. I know we were talking earlier about how influential California is and how you learn about that in law school even, yeah. that you watch with the Ninth Circuit. And I, having gone to law school here, was just just assumed that we cover so much California because this is where we are. But really, the whole country covers it no matter yeah. where you went to law school. Yeah. And they say 
pay attention to California. At least in your school, they said pay attention to the wackos out in California, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I can tell you went to a more conservative yeah, law school. Yeah, conservative law school. Yeah, in Virginia. Right. What did they call us in the Ninth Circuit? The uh, we just kind of think you guys are batshit crazy in the oh, Ninth Circuit. Oh, yeah. thank you. <laughs> and so, but um, you know, leading leading uh, the nation in progressive politics, <laughs> just crazy stuff. I mean, I, I do think uh, California does set a progressive tone, and so I think you know we, we observe that across the country. Right. So that's why I think it'll be interesting to cover um, in the coming weeks and months the stories that come out and eventually perhaps after the result in California, whether the federal government will change its well, tone. I, I think it's heading there because, I mean, it's a big business. In 2014, um, it looks like we made $570 million in income through dispensaries. It's going to be hard to argue. 40, to yeah, $50 million of that went to taxes. So when you actually start to legalize the stuff on a federal level, you're going to be bringing in more income for the states right. and for the federal government. Yeah. Should be interesting to watch what happens. And of course, we'll be keeping a close eye on that. All right, so now on to Britney Spears getting grilled. Britney Spears has not been in the news uh, recently, but you'll remember from way back in the day when she was in the news every day yeah. for every time she went to get a cup of coffee or whatever. The good old days, she was going yeah. crazy. Like yeah. 2007, 2008. Yeah. Quarter life crisis. Yeah. All. We all experience it, right? Well, she had the. Uh, misfortune of, mm. of dealing with what to me seems like this creepy guy who inserted himself into her life, yeah. Sam Lufty, but he claims that Brittany asked him to be her manager and he is now suing Brittany and apparently her father for unpaid amounts owed due to that managerial work and because Brittany dad's Britney Spears dad punched him. Yeah. Okay, so the big news was that Britney Spears sat for her deposition, yeah. uh, which her attorneys had fought not to prevent her from being deposed, but from Sam Lefty being present. Yeah, yeah and we should note that uh, he actually had the suit in 2012, it was dismissed, and then he appealed it. So we'd gone through all this evidence, and they brought in paparazzi to testify, and people <laughs> testified, and it was dismissed, and now he came back again, and it looks like he's getting a, little bit, a second bite of the apple here. Lucky him. Um, so she had to sit for this deposition. She was forced to be in the same room with him. The judge would not um, allow him to be sort of kicked out, said that they'll do it at a conference room, they'll be on opposite ends of the table. I can imagine she was still probably terrified. Most people are terrified of having their deposition taken at all, even if they're the ones who filed a claim. Um, they, I think most people, when I suggest, do you have a sense that this is going to be like a police interrogation? They look at me like, yeah, because that's the only thing that they've seen on TV and don't really know what a deposition is. So I guess it can kind of feel like a grilling, a confrontation, but it's generally less, I think, aggressive than a police interrogation. But they do ask questions in a confrontational way. Didn't you do this? Didn't you say that? And yeah, you, as, a, as an attorney, you, ha you have a wider latitude of what you can ask during a deposition, so it could get pretty contentious. Yeah. So uh, as far as I know, she did it. She's done. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this case turns out. I, I think, well, though, isn't it, I mean, unless I'm missing something, during the time that he managed her, assuming that they really did have an agreement. Yeah. She wasn't doing much. So... Well, I mean, no, she, she came out with an album during that period of time. She was still producing work during that period of time. Um, but what I thought was interesting was the Court of Appeals actually kind of made some conclusions. And they concluded that she was struggling with drug, uh, drug abuse when, during the time period they were together. Um, they found that he did advise her to get clean and that one of the two of the stipulations for him to, that he made to manage her was that she get clean and that he assemble her team. 
So the court concluded that they found these elements um, from Sam Lutfi. Yeah, that's pretty shocking that they found that she, I mean, this is yeah. quote, you know, from that uh, findings that she was a drug abuser. Yeah. It doesn't say which kinds of drugs. Yeah. Um, and, but uh, yeah, I'm, I guess it, it gives credence to his case, but it's and and so like, I did a little bit of digging on this guy, uh-oh. and so it was actually good. You and like so, him? And, well, I don't know. I don't like him. He still he seems like a <laughs> shady character normal. to me. He seemed like a rational <laughs> but, person. But do you guys remember Amanda Bynes? Yes. Yeah. And you know she was put on a psychiatric hold. Do you guys remember how? Do you know know how that happened? No. So I, I didn't realize this, but so he was the one. He worked with Amanda Bynes' parents. He calls Amanda up. And he says, um, look, we're going to sue your parents, and I, I want to help you sue them and manage you and have you. So, what a shit So we're going to have you come to L.A., because I believe she was in New York at the time, meet the lawyer, and then we're going to go to the London um, Hotel in Hollywood and go confront your parents with the lawsuit. Amanda says, okay, great. Gets on the plane. Um, so he's taking her now to the lawyer's office, but where he really takes her to is a hospital in Pasadena. And apparently the hospital looks like an office from the outside. Yeah. And when she got in there, they were she was surrounded by um, medical personnel, and that's when they involuntarily committed her. So he manages their personal lives. It, to some degree. And so the parents um, were actually thankful that he helped and was able to get Amanda back to L.A. to... Um, to a committer. And the so, whole con- confronting the parents with a lawsuit was really... That was just that a ruse, was ruse to get her to fly back to L.A. Huh. So he may be some sort of Bengali of substance abuse and helping well, people get apparently into. things didn't go well with Britney Spears' family because the father is alleged to have punched him. So I don't, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't think the relationship panned out well, that way yeah. this time. Huh, I don't know. I don't get a good sense of this guy, but I guess if there was an agreement, then agreement's an agreement, and he would get his, I don't know, 15%. But I had believed that she wasn't really doing much at that time, that she didn't come out with much. Yeah, Uh, she came out with an album during that time, yeah. Wow, shows how much... um, And that's when she did the whole MTV performance, and that went sideways, but it was from a single from that album. (laughs) yes, I do remember that. All right, okay, so we shall see about that. All right, and so now a follow-up story to... A story we first covered when it happened one year ago. This was an officer-involved shooting of an armed black man. It happened on April 2nd, 2015. It involved, and I say officer, I guess I should do air quotes, because he was a volunteer reserve Reserve deputy, deputy, Robert Bates, who was 73 years old. Uh, Let's um, roll the video so that you might be re-familiarized with what happened here. On your stomach. Now. So wait. Oh, shit, man, he's coming. He's got him. Oh, God, he's coming. Oh, God, he's coming. God, this is so disturbing. Yeah. All right, so what what we saw here was what happened after officers um, tackled him. He was involved in the sale of a firearm. Uh, cops showed up when he ran. Cops chased him, took him down, and the reserve cop took out what he said he believed was his taser mm-hmm. and, and, and said, taser, taser, and then pulled sort of, I don't know what it's called on a taser, but essentially the trigger, and said, oh, shoot, I shot him. I'm sorry. So shot him in the back, mm-hmm. and yet the officers 
are still on top of his head, still yelling at him. When he says, I can't breathe, one officer says, fuck your breath, and you ran. So as in just totally ignoring the fact that he was shot, which is one of the yeah. defenses, was like nobody heard that he, how do you not hear that shot? Yeah. And I imagine there would be blood. And the, the officer said, oh, I shot him. So this man, Eric um, Harris, died. And the reserve cop was charged with second-degree manslaughter and this week was convicted. And the jury recommended the maximum sentence of four years. Do you think that the uh, jury got this one right? Well, uh, you know, for me, I do think they got it right in terms of getting the sentence for the guy. But I, I believe that the deputy mis made a mistake when he shot this guy. And so this is kind of born out of this whole idea of slip and capture. So we had Sergeant Jim Clark that was sent in to... This slip and capture thing, yeah. this is the defense. Yeah. Well, 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 Sergeant Jim Clark went in to investigate what took place. And so he came up with this idea of slip and capture. And what slip and capture essentially is, is the idea that in the heat of the scene, that the officer, um, the, the reserve deputy, when he grabbed for his... Gun was thinking he was grabbing his taser, and because that was the overwhelming, I guess, the overwhelming idea that he had in his mind from previous times in that situation, he wasn't able to distinguish between the taser and the gun. And he actually provided a couple of reasons why it was clear. Number one, he says, I'm sorry, um, I, I, I didn't mean to, like, he said, I'm sorry, I shot him. Mm -hmm. The gun flies out of his hand because he wasn't expecting recoil, and he only shoots him once. Whereas, so he only tapped the trigger once, whereas officers were trained to do it twice, whereas with a taser, you'd only do it once. So these things together made me believe like it was a genuine mistake. However, life was lost, and he did deserve some time for that mistake. What do you think of this slip and capture thing, Shannon? So it's not rooted in science, so that's my issue with asserting a sort of psychology-type defense. Um, part of the slip and capture is that you're used to doing something so many times, and you're told to do something slightly different, and in the heat of the moment, you do the thing you usually do, which is grab for your gun. How many times oh, has this guy... When someone is running with no weapon in their hand, hands flailing wildly, so there's no gun in uh, their hand, right. you're so used to grabbing a gun, and you're supposed to grab your taser, which is canary yellow versus a three fifty revolver, very different types of objects. A taser is like very thick and chunky. A revolver has a revolver has a nice curved petite like feminine handle. I, I believe the possibility of that mistake, but I think it was a very egregious mistake. Oh, okay. And this is the first this is not the first time that this kind of defense has failed. Certainly. This was introduced in the all-too-familiar Oscar Grant case. They tried to assert that Officer Meserly had attempted to go for the taser, so used to going for the gun, went for the gun instead, and shot multiple times. Right. Yeah. That defense failed. That defense has never held up in court. Yeah, I don't know if we need a term for the defense, but do I think it's valid to say an officer made a mistake and he didn't intend to shoot um, a victim? I, I believe that's valid. I mean, the fact that it's just so go-to that everyone goes for their gun, that it's it's like, well, yeah, of course he made this mistake. Every day he goes for his gut. And like, th this is sort of what's wrong in the first place. Well, yeah. Exactly. This is implicit bias. And you I know. think what upset me the most, though, I mean, I, I was fine with that. To, to me, it looked like the guy made a genuine mistake. 73 years old, he probably shouldn't be out there in the first place. Which is a whole other issue. Yeah. So he probably shouldn't be out there in the first place. But I do believe he made a mistake based on what I saw in the video. What I didn't like was the officers, you know, fuck your breath and that kind of thing. And they came out and said, oh, there's something called auditory exclusion. And in the heat of the moment, there's who, certain, the, the, uh, the sergeant, attorney, Jim Clark. Okay. 
Defending he, the officers. Defending the officers said he said that because there's something called auditory exclusion where you don't hear um, certain loud noises in the heat of the moment. Auditory exclusion. And, and that when he said fuck your breath, he was really referring to um, the fact that he ran and was out of breath, which I didn't buy at all. And so that's what upset me about the case was not that there was an officer that made a mistake or it seemed to me made a mistake and they came up with this term slip and capture, but that they were looking for these sort of psychological things to kind of relieve them of all liability altogether. Right. And so, you know, if an officer makes a mistake, call it as a mistake, but don't continue to try to go down this it path just of makes absolving it all. So yucky, and I have zero sort of respect for this department that, A, looks like didn't train this man properly, yeah. and then tried to cover that up by right. falsifying records, uh, and the fact that he was likely there only because he had contributed thousands of dollars to the sheriff's election. Uh, this man was an insurance agent when he was working. I don't, I don't, I didn't know that you were allowed to just like play rent-a-cop. Right, I've heard yeah. of volunteer firefighters who are very honorable and who are trained as extensively as a regular firefighter. In the case of this gentleman, he didn't receive, and the, you know every party is giving a different answer here, but he didn't receive adequate training. He claims he was trained by the police department. The police department says, no, we didn't train him. So Everybody's like, nope, not our fault, not our fault, not our fault. So then now we have a, an unarmed man who is dead, mm -hmm. and this guy, Robert Bates, is trying to make a case for not going to jail because going to jail, going to prison, will be bad for his health. Well, it's effective. I think he's saying it's effectively a life sentence given the fact that he's 73 and he's got, you know, got four years. So, I, I mean... I, 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 I still think four years. I mean, the, his attorneys, Robert Bates' attorneys, were trying to make the point, like, this man is not a threat to society. I, I do think it was a mistake. I don't think he's a threat. I, I would be more inclined to give him four years of house arrest or you know something along those lines. Do I believe he belongs in prison? Yeah, I don't think it's going to do. I mean, normally I would yeah. I would agree with that. Like I think it's a waste of taxpayers' money to put somebody behind bars who's not really a threat to society. But this is just so infuriating uh, that I mean, he he just well, he killed somebody. Well, I, I think that's why you you want to hold the police department liable in this particular case. It's I, I want because they're the ones who are accountable to me in the first place. Seventy three years old. They have this guy out there with a gun and a taser. Uh, he shouldn't have had either, you know. Yeah. But that that's for the family to decide. But we as a society have to make decisions, too. And I think that four years in prison is appropriate. Someone has died here. Whether by accident or not, this is a life. And there needs to be a message sent to him, to police departments, to individuals who are overcome by slip and capture and auditory exclusion that, you know, the, <laughs> the decisions that you make when you're out there in the field in the yeah. heat of battle. Right. They have consequences. But this is what just, training is supposed yeah. to be for. So is this just yeah. another case for an argument that they don't get sufficient training? Uh, I don't know if it was training or this particular officer that was allowed to, yeah. to, to serve. I, I Somebody should have lost a job for allowing this man to participate well, in guess, the way that well, he did. Well, I guess did. he did. Uh, that's not enough for me. Yeah. I know. He was kind of a volunteer, so yeah, he, didn't, I mean, he really... didn't even have like a pension or anything. Yeah, but, now, but now he's got <laughs> essentially what's a life sentence. I... I have a hard time agreeing with the sentence for this guy. He seems like an active 73-year-old. If he had a gun, he was chasing down a suspect who was in his 20s. I, I mean, he might be all right. Or wait, in his 40s, he might yeah. be okay. All right. Oh, I want to skip around down to a, uh, a story that just I saw today. 
we have talked about defamation cases before, and we talk often about how difficult they are to prove, especially when uh, the person that's accused of, of defaming somebody is, is defaming like a famous person because there's a higher standard, a more difficult standard to overcome. But apparently Sean Penn has reached that difficult standard in his case against Lee Daniels. Mm -hmm. Lee Daniels, a while ago, I don't even remember when this was, a year or two ago, yeah. referenced Sean Penn when talking about Terrence Howard. Terrence Howard was in the news a lot because of domestic violence issues with his then wife. And Lee Daniels says something like, you know, Terrence Howard is not really any different from Sean Penn, so why Terrence Howard is getting all this heat is beyond me. Something to that effect. Sean Penn was offended by that and sued, and we don't know exactly what came of it because the the uh, terms are sealed. But there was, I think it, it went out in a tweet or a, some kind of apology letter, public apology letter, where Lee Daniels said, I am so sorry that I have hurt you, Sean, and I apologize and retract my reckless statements about you. How thoughtless of me. You are someone I consider a friend, a brilliant actor, and true Hollywood legend and humanitarian. Sean Penn said, I accept his heartfelt apology and the sincerity with which it was delivered. Sincere? See, you know, when you're on Twitter, uh, you, you have to put ad, hashtag ad, if it's a sponsored tweet. <laughs> and I wish they could put <laughs> hashtag settlement. And yeah. Clearly, this was part of the settlement, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That and apparently Lee Daniels is going to be making a contribution to Sean Penn's uh, relief organization for mm -hmm. Haiti. Uh, and that's, that's all that we I, know. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, if he believes that, you know, Sean Penn did not engage in what he was referring to, then I'm sure there's a sincerity in it. Yes, <laughs> Do you think that he came to realize that Sean Penn had not committed any like act of violence that would make this statement true, or that he was just like, I'm not going to go through this whole p lawsuit process to try and prove that think, he is violent. Right. I think he did not find any evidence that he was violent to, as a defense to support himself because with defamation, a defense is that everything I said was true. Right. Um, so it's not defamation. But I think ultimately Lee Daniels just figured the juice was not worth the squeeze. And that's my saying for when, you know, <laughs> uh, this is not worth the battle, true or false. I just want this yeah. to go away so I can yeah. move on yeah. with my multi-million dollar. Well, now, now you got something to talk to Lee Daniels about when you see him around. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's just kind of indicative of our kind of culture where everything you say is out in the news and it's there for 24 hours around the world. You know, but it's, I mean, that's a pretty, it's not like a little slip. No, no, I, I think when you make those kind of off-the-cuff statements in the past, it didn't get very far. Very few people heard it. Now enough people hear it where maybe the person who's the subject is more concerned about it because it now gets so much attention. Yeah. And so you can't let a little slip that may have, no one would have noticed, you know, go unheard of. Yeah, yeah. So you think next time you'll see him at the gym, you'll be like, hey, nice tweet. Yeah, so I, I like your tweet. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good intro segment. Yeah. Sure, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I love to be reminded of that settlement, right? All right. Okay, so now we're going to do something a little bit different. There was a White House report that looked at the effects of mass incarceration. came out with a lot of numbers, figures, some things that we knew or suspected, some that we didn't, some solutions. And so I'm going to do a little, like, quiz-type <laughs> show so that we can present everything that this White House report um, documents. Um, because I, th I think it's a, a really good look at where we are in 
our criminal justice system right now. So, um, you know, this has this report looked at um, the years 1980 to 2014, right? So most of our lifetimes, right? My entire lifetime. My entire Uh lifetime. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And in this time, we've you know tried this whole tough on crime approach, and the short end. The short conclusion of this study was that it's a sprawling, expensive, and largely ineffective system at reducing crime or rehabilitating offenders. On just that, any surprise? Oh, no. No? No. Okay. So let's see if any of these numbers do surprise you. Okay. So we know that the U.S. is home to just 5% of the world's population, but it houses what percent of the world's prisoners? Yeah, we saw that with 25%. Yeah. 25%. All right. One-fourth of the world. Which translates into 2.2 million people that are in federal, state, and local prisons or jails. And between 1980 and 2014, there was a dramatic increase or decrease in the crime rate? Oh, decrease. Increase. In the crime rate? Decrease. Oh, de- oh, crime rate. I'm yeah, sorry, I'm thinking rate. of prison population. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's one of the first interesting things is that our crime, our population has gone up of uh, prison population, but the crime rate has gone down. But that seems like a good thing, right? <laughs> well, yes, but then later on we'll discuss sort of the relationship, causal or otherwise, between the two. All right, so uh, the prison population during that time grew by... What percent? I'll give you some. Oh, yeah, 220%? Yeah. yeah. And violent crime rates fell about 40%, and property crimes fell about 50%. Mm-hmm. All right, so that might make some people say, oh, look, all this incarceration has been doing us a lot of good. Do you think that's true, yes or no? I think the relationship is in reverse. Yeah. But I do think there must be some nexus, right? There's got to be, you know, prison population goes up, crime rate goes down. I think there is some nexus in that. Well, the the research does not support that. Um, the research says that the falling crime rate is due to rising income, which is, is kind of rough because there's a massive income inequality issue. Yeah. So that well, one kind of baffles me just a bit because in the last 30 years, income has not risen, wages have stagnated for the middle class, most of the gains have gone to the 1%. So that's interesting. But they also cite falling unemployment. Here's an interesting one, a decline in the number of young Americans. Well, yeah. Because as we age, I guess we tend to commit less crime. Yeah. And so it's just the demographics have caused the reduction in crime. Improved police tactics. I wonder what well, those yeah, ones are. I guess on this show, that one might, we should have just stricken that one. <laughs> right. It also cites declines in alcohol and crack use, as well as a reduction in exposure to lead. That one's really interesting to me. See, but I, I thought, those, see, for me, those confounding variables are great, and that might, that doesn't explain to me, it doesn't explain away the fact that rising prison population, lower crime rate. So that, to me, does seem like there's a nexus, because these were all confounding variables. You, it, they were conjecture. I mean, I, I guess they were looking at certain markers that might explain it, but to me, I think there's also a nexus between more incarceration and lower crime rate. Oh, man. I, I did not see that in this report, and everything that, and I've not seen anything that specifically addresses that, but everything that I have understood says that there's not really a, yeah. a relationship. I mean, there are... Because we're talking about what rising incomes, falling unemployment, but these are all, 
these are all sort of conjecture as to you know why these things are happening. Right. Okay. So while there were arrests, um, while the arrests for most crimes declined between eighty and twenty fourteen, there was one exception. One crime had a mass increase in number of of arrests. Do you know which crimes? Taking drugs. Yeah, yes. war, the war on drugs. Drug crimes. 90%. Right. Arrests for drug crimes reached their peak in 2006 with law enforcement arresting 2 million people that year alone. Crazy. That's nuts. That's crazy. All right. So here's some more confirmation, I guess, of what minority communities have been saying for a long time. The report cites a large body of research from multiple disciplines, including economics, sociology, psychology, and criminology, that has found that for similar offenses, blacks and Hispanics face a higher likelihood of arrest and conviction than whites, as well as harsher penalties. Mm -hmm. Duh. Yeah, no surprise no, no, there. No surprise. <laughs> All right. Uh, the question, though... I think a lot of people might be asking, well, is that because blacks and Hispanics possess illegal goods more often than white people? The answer to that? Absolutely not. Right. <laughs> true. Not true at all. The um, black population, Hispanic population, and white populations are all uh, said to use and possess drugs at the same rates. But uh, blacks and Hispanics are more likely to be stopped and searched by police, which in turn turns into more arrests. Mm -hmm. Uh, researchers also found that black defendants are 24% more likely to be convicted if their trial has a jury chosen from an all-white pool of jurors, and that prosecutors are, get this, prosecutors are 75% more likely to charge black defendants with offenses that carry mandatory minimums. And that mandatory minimum thing is one of the things that has caused a huge population growth because people are being held on to longer. Yeah. And I wasn't actually, you know, the, the black defendant with the all-white jury, I, that was, you know, disconcerting. But you know, they didn't look at, like, a white defendant with an all-black jury. Because does that ever happen? That's very, well, un very unlikely. <laughs> but I'm sure it happens. But, mm. but, but the, what the I think we could probably count the number of times on <laughs> fingers and toes. To be selected for a jury, you have to be in certain states and counties. You need to be registered to vote, or you need to have an ID, or you need to have an address and have been at that address for a certain amount of time. That Those sort of factors don't usually come into play for people of color. There are just more white people who end up being selected for juries, even if they lived in a majority black town. No, yeah, no, so. I completely agree, but I just wonder what that statistic would look like. Uh, but, well, I'm, I'm guessing it would be unimpressive. I don't uh, yeah, think it would, I don't think it would change anything. I think implicit bias against black mm -hmm. people even operates within black people to where if there is a white defendant, I think even an all-black jury could potentially have reverse implicit bias and think that the person is guilty versus innocent. I think it's possible, but I would have liked to have seen it at least mentioned or included. Okay. Looks like we've got a homework assignment for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. And I, 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 I did say that the prosecution, though, that to me was the most egregious statistic because they are really the ones pushing you know, mandatory minimums. And yeah. so for them to not have, and they, they're the legal community. They're, they're you and I. We're supposed to have well, that sort of Well, the prosecutors are pushing for, for these these crimes, and that we as voters have yeah. allowed these uh, mandatory minimums. I'm just saying, to as attorneys, set. I can't believe yeah. that there are prosecutors out there that are behaving in this manner. Oh, I can. So <laughs> if convicted, black defendants regularly receive longer sentences than whites for similar crimes. These trends mean minorities are more likely than white defendants to have an existing criminal record when they are charged with a new crime. Huge which problem. increases severity of punishment. Yeah. All right. So how much... I'll give you a, a hint. It starts <laughs> with a B for billion. How much money does the U.S. spend on incarceration each year? 
Well, it's 80 billion. Two. 80. 80 billion. On the entire criminal justice system, I think, uh, Shannon, you were about to say $270 billion. It's yeah. a lot. This one's interesting. The U.S. employs two and a half times more corrections officers per capita than other nations, but employs 30% fewer police officers per capita. That doesn't make sense to me because I thought correction officers, parole officers, probation, that those would cost more uh, to taxpayers than police officers. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think we got caught in a situation where the prison population was getting so high, we still needed to police that, you know, internally. Okay, so but that, uh, do you think that this is something that's like wrong, or you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. We should, we should keep that up, or you think we should reverse that and have more police, fewer correction uh, officers? We should be attempting to reverse that, but the only way to reverse that is to start to deplete our prison population. Right. All right, so in 2013, how many states spent more on incarcerating people than on higher education? 11. Good job, 11. That's pretty sick. I hope it's not wow. California. <laughs> I hope we're not included. <laughs> the threat of longer sentences does or does not appear to deter potential youth offenders? Does not deter. Correct. Yeah, they found uh, that juvenile arrest rates barely respond to lengthier expected sentences. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're a kid committing crimes. You, I don't think you go out and go, oh, well, just found out. Extra couple of years if we do this crime. Let's, yeah, you based know. on the mandatory minimum statute in my state. Yeah. There's still this candy bar again. I'm going to get a mandatory yeah. four to five years. Yeah, no. Uh, true or false, the rate of recidivism increases for each additional year behind bars. True. Yeah. True. Yeah, I didn't read that, but yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, I didn't realize that until this this report. I mean, I knew the recidivism rate was high, yeah. but to have a connection between every year that you're in there, the higher the chance. I mean, I guess it makes intuitive sense, but that this is, oh yeah. my gosh, this is not good. When these people that have been in jail for 10, 20 years come out and we wonder why they go back, it's because their whole life has been set up to live In a system that's not rehabilitative. Right. Yeah. And at least in regards to drug offenses in particular, they say that a prison is the worst place for a drug abuser to go because they end up actually having more access to drug drugs, less idle time, and no actual medical help for their problem. Right. All right. So in terms of a solution, the study looked at several areas of investment and found that a couple would be cost effective. Any guesses as to what areas of investment the study found would be cost effective? To stop recidivism? To, to address the mass incarceration, the costs, and the, I guess, effectiveness. Well, one of them, which I, is interesting, I don't, don't know how they studied this, but they said increasing the minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2020 oh, yeah. would be cost effective in reducing crime and, and incarceration. And the other was expanding the police force. Uh, the one that they looked at, but that did not look to be cost effective, and I can't believe they looked at it, seems kind of silly, is increasing the popu pr prison population. So sort of like maintaining the status quo. Mm -hmm. um, but I think these two things by themselves are, are not going to address it. I think a big part will be when the federal government changes its course on marijuana, because I think it's something like half a million nonviolent drug offenders are sitting in prison costing us a lot of money to keep people 
behind bars where they're not really a harm to society. Yeah, I know the Obama administration is working hard on those commutations and pardons the people that are nonviolent drug offenders. Yeah, I, I'm uh, working hard. I mean, I want to say like thousands released. I mean, we talked about, you know, he's about 40 some out here and a couple of there, but in the scheme of things, it's so minimal. And I know that there are many resources out there looking at these. We know who these people are, the non I, I I wish, I hope there's like a, a mass floodgate release um, <laughs> right before he um, does his last official mic drop. But do we, do we hope that given the fact that so many are going back, you know? Well, we know what is the it, problem two-thirds will are arrested be, within three years and 75% in five years. The problem well, the will be education. the good thing is that once the law changes, these nonviolent marijuana offenders will go out into maybe California if we pass our recreational law, and they'll smoke marijuana the same thing they did to go to jail, and they wouldn't go back. That's, I think, right. what we hope happens. Or, or they can now become part of the legal marijuana industry, which up to this time has been... Uh, most beneficial to white Americans <laughs> who have been the ones that have been opening the dispensaries and gaining the profit from this. Um, it hasn't sort of been fair across the spectrum of black community, Hispanic community, of people benefiting from the legalization of marijuana, but perhaps um, times can be a change, in, especially yeah. here in and California. That's, that's certainly yeah. an economic issue because you can't get a business loan to open a dispensary. It has to be your cash on hand. Um, a, young man who's just gotten out of jail for marijuana likely doesn't have a pension that he can cash in to start his own dispensary. Or sometimes it's hard to get a loan or get a job even when you have that criminal record. I think we saw some yeah, uh, damn statistics get about getting jobs when you have a criminal record. So Yeah, so there's gonna there, certainly a holistic approach is needed, but I think that what's great is that these these numbers, these things that we've long suspected are being confirmed over and over in studies. And I think that the more that the general population is aware of them, the more our minds can start going to the solutions once we're very clear on what the problems are. Right. Yeah. So for that reason and more, I'm very happy that you joined us here today on Justice is Served. And I hope you join us next week. Before we go, um, please comment, like, um, reach out to us. You can reach me at Chelsea Galicia. Uh, you can reach me at Twitter and Instagram at Shaka Strong. You can reach me at Twitter at Shannon Myricks. All right, everyone. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. See you. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us, info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio. Instagram me, at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.